climate change and national security, the future of 5G, and the Townsville defense strategy. Welcome to Policy, Guns, and Money, the SP podcast, with me, Olivia Nelson. In this week's episode, we discuss ASPI's recent report on 5G and how to create a trusted ecosystem for vendors and technology. You know, 5G is not about how fast you can download a Netflix movie to your phone, no matter what the marketing people might tell you. And the Townsville Council's recently released defence strategy. So the whole idea was to come together as a community, understand what our strengths were, and then importantly, understand what defence wants. But first... Dr. Robert Glasser and Anastasia Capetis sit down for the first discussion in our new ongoing series that puts climate change front and centre in the national security debate. Over the course of this series, audience participation is encouraged. We want to know what our listeners are interested in hearing about, so please drop us an email with your suggestions. Hi, my name is Anastasia Capetis. I'm the National Security Editor at The Strategist here at ASPE. Today we're kicking off a new series which is looking at climate change and national security. And my partner in crime is Robert Glasser, who's a visiting fellow here at ASPE. Robert, can you tell us a little bit about your background? Sure, very happy to join you on this inaugural um, podcast. I have had a career that has spanned both uh, NGOs. I've worked as the was the Secretary General of Care International, which is a large international humanitarian organization active in 80 countries around the world um, and very closely involved with disasters, humanitarian disasters, complex emergencies, war and the like. I've also worked uh, after that uh, for the United Nations as the United Nations Secretary General's Special Representative for Disaster Risk Reduction, which was both a slightly operational but mostly um, advocacy-related position that essentially involved visiting a lot of countries around the world and encouraging them to do more to address climate and disaster risk. And now I'm a visiting fellow here at ASPE. So obviously you bring just such a deep wealth of international experience um, to the debate, so that's really fantastic. My own climate change journey started when I was editor-in-chief at a magazine called The Diplomat, and in 2005 we published uh, a cover um, which was called The Climate Bomb, and we had a cover story written by Coral Bell, the late, great international relations specialist. I knew Coral Bell. She was wonderful. Wonderful woman, you know, a, a mind like I've never seen. Her article um, basically said we need a Manhattan Project on climate change. And for a, for a long time in the 2000s, it, it seemed like that's what was going to happen. But we're in a very different place now. In, in this pod, we're going to be really thinking that uh, everything has kind of changed uh, this year. In, in 2020, a lot of the discourse around climate change has really moved closer to the, to the idea that climate change is really intrinsic to national security as well. What do you think about that? Robert? Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, you know, our own bushfires, our own black summer, which was just devastating and on a scale, an unprecedented scale for Australia, played widely on media all across the world. And the links between climate and these bushfires were a prominent theme in the media coverage. So I had colleagues from all over the world who were contacting me during that time, commenting on the, uh, the links with climate change and And now it's obvious that this is a major issue, not just as a disaster issue, but as a security issue. And then the disasters in California, which have seen so much destruction, also unprecedented. Yeah, I think the 
the pennies dropped that these environmental record-setting events, many different sorts of record-setting events, are indication that we're really entering a new era in disasters. I think that's true. Uh, some uh, commentators have said because COVID followed so closely on the heels of this new era of climate change disaster, that somehow COVID will subsume anxiety and action on climate change. What do you think? I think uh, it's understandably dominated our thoughts right now, uh, the risk of a massive pandemic like this, uh, which we are so far containing, in Australia anyway, relatively successfully. But the reality is that the frequency and severity of these disaster events, in including both simultaneous consecutive disasters are increasing. And the period of time between them, between these extreme events, are, is narrowing. Mm. And so it may go off the agenda for a short time or, or simmer under the surface, but it will be back with a passion. But it, it would definitely become roaring back, yes. Yeah. In, I think that's, that's, uh, that's really the way that we probably need to think about it now. So a lot of different um, security traditions around the world are grappling with different ways of framing this issue. How do you put security and climate change together? We're often uh, traditionally used to thinking about security in terms of uh, state threats, uh, armies invading, terrorists blowing up bombs. Climate change is obviously a very different kind of threat. How would you describe climate change as a national security threat? Yeah, and this discussion, this debate is related to this long-standing discussion about human security, thinking about human security, whether it's links to poverty and the like. But it's increasingly, I think, appropriate to look at this as a national security issue because, um, you know, if, if we ask what are we, it, when we're strengthening our defense, what are we trying to preserve? We're trying to preserve our way of life. We're trying to preserve Australian lives, protect Australian lives and property, our economic impact and the like. And increasingly what we're seeing with climate change is not only direct impacts on Australian lives, the people who died in the bushfires, for example, or the many, an increasing number of people that are dying from heat a stroke in Australia, heat stress, and the impacts on property the, the economic impacts, yes. billions of dollars, yes. but increasingly climate change is also going to directly uh, generate direct security threats as a result of instability in our region, people movements, food insecurity, water ins yes. insecurity and the like. So really in terms of, yeah, this is the difficulty with climate, isn't it? Because it's, it's the primary systemic risk that has cascading effects to every other system that we depend upon. Yeah, and this is why, you know, sometimes uh, in the, Listeners may have uh, noted when, when some officials, government officials talk, or even military officials talk about climate change, they describe it as a threat multiplier, as if it's actually one of many threats that are making the, the main game more serious, whether it's the competition yes. with China or others. In reality, um, climate change, as you said, it's a global systemic change that is actually affecting everything else much as a fundamental issue in itself. Not So threat multiplier really understates the magnitude of the it impact. doesn't really, yeah, it doesn't really help us really grapple intellectually. We probably need exactly a very different framework. Having said that, militaries have been seized of the issue of climate change for a very long time, for decades. Um, there are, are groups, global groups of, of, of military folk, for example, uh, the Global Military Advisory uh, Council on Climate Change, which has been going since 2009, made up of uh, military professionals around the world discussing the issue. 
So one of the one of the ways in which they have tried to frame it is again the threat multiplier stuff, also the effect on basing, uh, on on materiel, on personnel, uh, those practical issues, logistical issues that the that militaries will have to deal with around climate change. In the intelligence part of the military, a lot of the framing has been, okay, climate change, it's just another threat to tack on to the range of threats that we're already looking at. And in many ways, it's too big, it's too systemic for that kind of approach. So that's where I think uh, some of our uh, ways of thinking about climate change in military circles is also, I think, beginning to change quite rapidly. I think there is more of a realisation that climate change actually has to be brought into the centre of analysis uh, rather than kind of tacked on to the periphery. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And maybe I'd say there are three categories of impacts if we focus on, say, traditional military role in society or in protecting Australia's national security. The first is the one you mentioned, which is the impact on operations, on bases as a result of sea level rise, you know, naval bases are at risk or uh, higher waves, which are predicted with climate change, which have impacts for operations or higher temperatures that could impact supply chains, the need to deliver water to troops in the field, a whole range of just operational issues linked to rising temperature. The second is the impact on disaster events and the need for defense forces to, as we saw in Black Summer and and previous disasters in Australia, to be involved domestically in Australia in supporting disaster response to these unprecedented hazards that are striking and simultaneous hazards. Similarly, the role of the Australian Defence Forces in helping in our region, Pacific Island countries, some of which have, for whom climate change is an existential risk, the support in disasters, cyclones and the like. And third, the third category is the impacts on traditional national security issues, the instability in our region, which uh, in country, on, you, know, you can swim to Papua New Guinea from Australia. Um, Indonesia, the fourth most populous country in the world, is on our doorstep. And our region to our north, the region to our north, is a climate hotspot on a whole variety of different levels, which will have huge implications for our own national security and for the role of the ADF. Our listeners may be aware of the role of climate change in uh, the Arab Spring. Um, and uh, that was what, the, for a lot of geopolitical analysts, that they talk about this particular case, which was uh, a prolonged drought in China basically meant that the supply of rice uh, kind of was really tightened, prices went up, and because we live in a highly globalised, interconnected economy, and that's the other thing to, to remember when we're thinking about cascading effects of climate change, because of that interconnectedness, that fed into uh, price rises across the Middle East, which again fomented the simmering resentment against very authoritarian rulers in the region and you know, politics ensued uh, after that. Yeah, the, there was a slogan during the riots, which was bread, food and democracy or something like yeah. that. And, and protesters were brandishing baguettes of bread <laughs> yes. as a result of that. So, yeah, there's a connection. Of course, it wasn't the cause of the of Arab Spring, yes. but it was a contributing factor, absolutely. And it was linked to an unprecedented yeah. drought in the region that caused uh, and, and drought in that region combined with extreme drought in Ukraine and Russia and in China and uh, extreme weather in Australia and Canada that contributed to that. And scientists have linked those events, some of those atmospheric events, climatic events, to climate change um, 
but maybe without going into that detail. So we've seen, yes, how these how climate can impact at a local scale, at a regional scale, and a global scale, this unprecedented connection, uh, and that how those impacts can have cascading local impacts on people, regional impacts, and global impacts on the price of food, for example. Well, I really like that word you use, connection, which I think is much more useful than the word that I use, which is causality, because I think it goes to the heart of how we have to reimagine the way that we think about uh, about threat. Um, usually we think about one vector of threat. This is not the case with a phenomenon like climate change. So we've just you know, talked about the example of the Arab Spring, um, but there's another example, isn't there? Yeah, there is an example. It's not, it is controversial somewhat, but it's certainly illustrative of, uh, of climate impacts, and that is the Syrian civil war. There was a, a multi-year, unprecedented, at least in his, historically in, in human history, drought that caused hundreds of thousands of people to move from rural areas where their crops were destroyed into the cities, and that contributed to the instability in Syria. It wasn't the cause of the Syrian civil war exclusively, but it was a contributing factor, which led to huge, of course, the civil war itself led to huge population displacements, both regionally and ultimately to Europe, where it became a, a major political issue. And in fact, it was a, uh, a, it was a contributing cause of Brexit and of uh, actually as a result of a threat to the cohesion of the European Union. So here's a climate event that contributes to a local problem that becomes a regional and actually a, a altering the political landscape of Europe. So if you think about these massive political effects uh, that happened in a world where the pace of climate change was seemed, at least, incremental, and then... Imagine the political effects in a world where climate change has a bunch of cascading, much more rapid effects. I'm going to make a, a prediction which basically says this, which is in the next three years, the political complexion of the globe will be completely changed by climate. I think that is a safe bet. And I think the only reason people don't realise that is the point you made, that people are assuming that the changes they've seen over the last 10 years will be happening at the uh, same pace uh, in the future, when in fact, all the science suggests that these changes will be happening non-linearly, accelerating non-linearly. And so yes, 10 years, it's perfectly reasonable, I think, to make that prediction. We really have entered a new era. Yeah, if we just imagine in Australia, we've just been through a black summer. If you extrapolate now, the pace of these hazards is increasing non-linearly, very quickly. If you now extrapolate that, what we just went through and what California has gone through to Indonesia and to the Philippines, and then you look at coping mechanisms that countries to our north have used in the past to deal with food insecurity, such as purchasing grain from other regional countries, Vietnam in the case of yes. Indonesia recently, and you imagine Vietnam in a similar crisis, you can see that the regional impacts, the that the local impacts have regional connections, the regional connections have global connections in a global systemic change like this. I think that's just such an important thing to keep in mind. We've talked a lot in the last 10 years about the weight of the global economy shifting to Asia, but at the same time, Asia is in so, so many uh, ways a hotspot for climate change 
at the same time. So those are other two big trends that are going to really be coming head to head over the next decade. Yeah, and Australia, unlike any other OECD country, is in a region of many near neighbor, less developed countries that are, as you've pointed out, a hotspot for climate. You know, even if we just focus on maritime Southeast Asia, over 500 million people, half a billion people on Australia's doorstep, where the, if you look at the impact of El Niños and La Niñas, they are, scientists believe it's not certain, but on balance, they believe they will, El Niños will increase in double in frequency and in severity. The El Niño hotspot is right over maritime Southeast Asia, and that's happening in the context of a warming climate, more severe cyclones, greater storm surge because of sea level rise, collapse of coral reefs because of acidification and warming oceans, and on and on. And this region to our north is really that the impacts on Australia will be absolutely fundamental. And um, there are a couple of other hotspots that um, that have been talked about around the world. For example, in yesterday's New York Times, Fatima Bhutto, who's the niece of Benazir Bhutto, uh, the assassinated uh, uh, president of Pakistan, said that climate change is the greatest national security threat to her country because they're living right kind of underneath the Himalayan ice melt phenomenon. Uh, they depend on the Indus River essentially for all of their agricultural uh, production. Um, and that is that river, which also uh, flows obviously into, into India as well, into the Indian bread baskets, um, is also one of the you know, real hotspots of climate change. Yeah, absolutely. That's going to be huge. You mentioned Pakistan. There was also an article recently, uh, the president of Indonesia just announced that an initiative that will create farm estates to build Indonesia's food security, its independence, wow. And one of the motivations for this he commented on was climate change. So I think the area is something like 10 times the size of Singapore. Maybe it's even larger than that. But it's an attempt to establish food security in an increasingly uncertain environment in the face of climate change. So this is another trend that is feeding uh, deglobalization, essentially, of, of the global economy, or at least in part. It'll be interesting to see how successful that is. Can countries actually do that? And of course, some, some countries will be unable to do that. Yeah, and the irony is that um, it's a problem that can only be solved with multilateral action yes. through a, in a globalized yeah. world. And the responses could very well be putting up walls as a response to the impacts uh, so that trade-off will be interesting to observe as it unfolds over the next decade. It will. So the discussion we've had today, Robert, um, really covers a lot of the themes that we want to explore further and unpick um, through you know, over the next few months uh, of podcasts on these really important and interesting ideas that are becoming just so critical to our national security debate. Absolutely. So I look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you very much. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Now, Tommy Wren speaks with Rajiv Shah about his recent report, Ensuring a Trusted 5G Ecosystem of Vendors and Technology. They discuss the importance of setting international standards and the need to encourage network providers to use multiple vendors to ensure a secure 5G network. Hi, Rajiv. Today we're talking about 5G. You've just written a report about ensuring a trusted ecosystem of suppliers. So what is 5G and why would I care about it? So 5G is the next generation of mobile phone networks. This is going to be the next step change in mobility and communications for us. 
And the reason why you should care, well, it's likely that 5G is going to be one of the most critical things that underpins things that we haven't even thought of yet. You know, 5G is not about how fast you can download a Netflix movie to your phone, no matter what the marketing people might tell you. But 5G is going to be the core technology that's going to underpin remote sensing, automated factories, autonomous vehicles, all of these future applications. And therefore, you're going to rely on that 5G network, not only to be secure and private, but to always be working and working as how you expect it to be. In, in a decade from now, it'll be fundamental to the core of our society. Okay, so I remember a couple of years ago, Scott Morrison stood up and there was a press conference and we banned couple of high risk what we called high risk vendors from our 5g network so isn't that job done no forget that, about it now. that was the start of the job right because as i said what's going to be really critical is the security and the reliability of those networks and you know if we just say we won't use these particular vendors it doesn't mean that the vendors are left are the ones that we can 100 percent trust there's nothing to worry about it's all going to be perfect um, the other thing we need to worry about is making sure there's a diverse system of vendors we don't want to end up in a position where we're just working with one vendor because that's going to leave us exposed. You know, we find a bug in that particular vendor's kit or that vendor becomes one we don't trust, then where are we going to go next? A functioning market requires a diverse ecosystem of vendors. So my impression, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that as Australia certainly has not really done anything to try and address those issues. And I'm not even, I don't even think the West, air quotes the West, has done anything to address those issues. We've kind of been happy to have, well, well how many vendors are we talking about? depending on how you count them, you know, maybe one, maybe two, maybe two and a half, I think, you know, is a quote I heard the other day. The thing is, you know, there were a couple of Chinese vendors that we said we're not going to use, and then we're left with, you know, a couple of European vendors and maybe some new entrants trying to get into the market. But it's not a particularly large amount of choice that we've got at the moment. So we're stuck with a small number of vendors, yep. but we want more. So what do we do about that? Are there things we can practically do? Yeah, I think there are things we can do. We need to look at each area there. In, in the 5G system. So it's not just about radio mouse, but it's about core networking and other parts of the ecosystem. Looking at those and what vendors there are and how we can make it easier for new vendors to get into the market. I mean, if we can get it right, 5G actually ought to produce a lot of opportunities for new vendors to come into the market. And you know, the flip side of this is, you know, it's not just about securing it, it's about opportunities for Australian industry as well. You know, 5G brings in what we call virtualization, which basically means less expensive sort of specific hardware and more chance to do things in software. And, you know, in Australia, we've got a booming technology ecosystem, good opportunities for us there. But what we need to understand is there's a lot of barriers there, some of them sort of explicit and some of them more sort of more hidden. Mm, like what? So one key one is just actually around the whole sort of standards and interoperability. You know, mm. telecommunications has always been built on standards, but then actually... Standards only sort of tell you half the story and the, the challenges in the implementation. Right. And to be honest, if you talk to a lot of telecommunications companies now, I think they've sort of gone away from the idea of trying to integrate lots of different kits. You know, it's much simpler from their point of view to buy an end-to-end -end service from one vendor and then they've got, you know, one throat to choke. So when the network goes down and all the customers are screaming at them, they've got one person to go and choke. So, so I can understand why a telco, like a, a company that's providing telecommunication services like Telstra Optus, wants fewer vendors because it's easier to integrate uh, one throat to choke as you say yeah. um, but it seems to me that it's also perhaps cheaper so what are the kind of levers you're suggesting that government might try to encourage companies to use more vendors 
So I think there are, you know, there are two aspects to it, right? So as you always say, it's a carrot and a stick, right? And I think the government first of all needs to look at how it can encourage more diversity and make it more attractive. Um, so one suggestion there is about providing some sort of integration facilities or test facilities that can be used to go and check how we get different pieces of kit to work together. Mm-hmm. You know, we see this sometimes, used to see this in other areas, what is called a plug fest. Etsy used to run, we sort of got different things, different vendors coming, plugging their kit together. Maybe we need a facility like that in Australia that and people those, can use. Do they exist? Overseas? Um, so interestingly, there is an organisation in Germany that's been looking to set up one of these similar sort of test beds, and I think we could probably go and learn from that and see how that works. I mean, the other reason I like this idea is that it enables a new entrant to come in and try and fit their new piece of kit into the existing world as well. Yes, because, you know, it's, it's, an odd, it's also about innovation as well, isn't it? You know, let's be honest, big, large multinational companies are good for stability and being around that, but a lot of the innovation that comes is from the SME community that we have. So giving them the opportunity to prove their wares and prove that what they have is worthwhile. And, you know, the other part of the carrot is around, you know, how do we make sure it's a, it's, there's the right investment and the right ecosystem to encourage that industry. But I think also, you know, we need to think about the stick as well. We've got to make it to the point where, you know, you're right, given a, given a choice, you know, the telco might say, oh, I just want all this one vendor because that's easier for me. So do, as a, from a regulation point of view, because from a national resilience point of view, we want to make sure there's redundancy and there's extra capability in there. So actually mandating that, you know, so some of the key components, there are at least two vendors, for example, that are there. And if you want to look at international examples, you know, that's one of the things that the UK said early on. You know, the UK has only recently maybe come around to our point of view on high-risk vendors. But even then they said, you know, what they need to make sure is I think, you know, no one vendor had more than 30% of the market. Mm, yeah. So I suppose the other option you could take is that you could mandate that different telcos had to use different types of kit. But that's you're not a, you're not a fan of that. Well, for two reasons. First thing, from an implementation point of view, I think to go to each telco and say you need to use at least two vendors' kit is a lot easier to implement than saying, now Telstra's picked this one, now you just have to pick another one. It's like, you know, musical chairs. Yeah, there's that sort of musical chairs, you know, first one across the line type of thing, dynamics you want. Um, the other thing is, though, from a resilience point of view, you know, if we look back again, one of the reasons why we want this is to avoid that, you know, monoculture risk that if there's a some critical bug in one vendor system. You don't want the whole of one carrier's network going down. You want to build resilience at the individual carrier network level as well as at a national level. And therefore, uh, you know, for that reason as well, I wouldn't go, go one that route. One of the visitors we've had to the cyber centre is Mike Rogers, the former head of NSA. And I remember him saying about 5G, how did we get into this situation? <laughs> so it strikes me that now we're at a point where 5G is just rolling out. But no doubt, I don't know how many years' time, 6G will be here. So do you think your prescriptions will help for future iterations of these technologies? So definitely in the report, there are prescriptions when we look at that. You know, We talked about some of the things we want to do now around 5G, but I think absolutely there is a question we should be asking ourselves. How do we get here? What lessons do we learn? And how do we avoid this situation in the future? So some of the things we need to be looking at there is around, you know, where are we investing in our R&D? You know, what are those technologies like 6G, like quantum computing? What else is coming down the line? And are we as a nation investing early up front in that R&D and making sure we have that sort of technical edge and technical capability? The things that we invest in now from a research and development point of view are going to turn into commercial, commercial ideas a decade down the line. So now we have to take that action. The other thing we need to do is look at make sure we're engaging in things like, you know, international collaboration and standards and things like that. So we're part of setting the agenda. 
we're not waiting for someone else to work out what 6G is going to look like and then coming from behind and trying to work out how to build something that meets those standards. I am going to be a bit contrarian and I'll say that we've never really done that kind of work, have we, before? I mean, why... I don't see Australia being particularly activist in setting technology standards or actually particularly good at, or actually particularly being good at, at developing and pushing out new technologies. So why should we start now? Why don't we just keep digging rocks out of the ground? <laughs> well, you know, how do we end up in the situation we're in today? It's because we what we did in the past didn't work and we need to change it. Another thing to think about in standards, actually, though, is, you know, standards, you know, once upon a time used to be, you know, those dull, boring things that engineers did in a darkened room and did for the goodness of humanity, right? Um, standards have become actually very politicised now. And there are examples that I quote in the report, an example of where national interests have conspired to try and push standards in one direction. So it's not necessarily now what's the best solution engineering is coming, what's best for the world. It's commercial companies coming in there and working, how can they tilt it to their commercial interests or actually the nation state level? How can we make our country's technologies more dominant because the standard requires our patents or our technology? Right, okay. So a, a country will say, our companies own these, this intellectual property. Yeah. Let's make that intellectual property part of the cool. standard yeah. and those companies will prosper. Yeah. It sounds like a dastardly plan. Thanks for talking to me, Rajiv. That's all right. Thank you. Pleasure talking to you. Finally, John Coyne speaks to David Burke, Defence Engagement Officer at the Townsville City Council. They discussed the Townsville North Queensland Defence Strategy, which was released earlier this year. Today we're joined by David Burke, the Defence Engagement Officer from Future Cities and with the Townsville Government. Now, David, we've really started talking here about um, ASPE's North and Australia's National Security Program. Um, we've been running this program for about 18 months, two years, uh, really pushing and focused on defence and federal government. Um, more recently, we've had this sort of really big focus and in our next report will focus on this, which is really looking at that this issue from a national security perspective and nation building rather than just defence and military. Um, now, my key focus in all of this has been that I guess a northern Australia that is, is ready to support defence and national security needs to be an economically and socially prosperous one, and that's not easy. Um, but in all of those discussions, one thing we haven't really touched on is is really, you know, where does the local governments fit in all this? Are they just a passenger? Um, so today I thought what we'd do by inviting you along is to sort of sit there and give a bit of a Townsville government perspective, um, and specifically because, and we'll talk a little bit about this today, um, you guys have just recently released your own defence strategy, which for some in Canberra and other places might seem a little bit strange. So why don't we just start from the top and sit there and I'm going to ask this simple question. Why a strategy? Why does Townsville need a defence strategy? That's a really good question, John. But basically, um, I uh, retired from the military uh, last year and was brought on uh, in the role of defence engagement officer. And one of the tasks I was given was to assist uh the development of a strategy and, and the implementation of the strategy, what we found is that we were looking at aligning community aspirations with national requirements. And it's not just defence, but things like the, the Northern Australian White Paper. And looking at, it's interesting in the community, it was alignment of the community. There were a lot of people interested in how they could work with defence, but a lot of people had uh, different understandings. They didn't understand what is the defence wanted and there were a lot of mixed messages so the whole idea was to come together as a community, understand what our strengths were, and then importantly, understand what defence wants. 
So we've come up with a strategy that's mutual benefit. Rather than going uh, and, and saying, you know, look at the defence budget, there's a lot of money, why can't they spend it here? It was basically an exercise of understanding what are the strengths of our region? And when we talk, the Townsville strategy is actually Townsville North Queensland, so it's five regional councils led by Townsville. What is it that, that where are our strengths in the region? By understanding uh, national policy, what is it defence wants? And how can we come up with a way that's mutually beneficial to provide, you know, support national security by helping defence and also bring economic benefit to our region? Now, Dave, could you give us, for those who aren't and haven't read the actual um, strategy and or who might be a little bit cagey about it in the sense that, you know, you know, it's a the locally government produced strategy. Could you give us a bit of a tasting menu of what that really looks like? It, it, uh, it was a great exercise, John, and, and really, it, you know, there's, there's nothing in there that uh, would surprise anybody. When you look at it, what, what, are, what is Townsville's main strength? Uh, it's interesting. We have, um, we have Australia's largest operational army base. We've got the, uh, a joint user air base. We've got a very capable port. Uh, we've got training ranges, so obviously a mounting base. We've had a history of being a mounting base right through from the Second World War till now. So, you know, we, we see our strengths of being around that area of, of training, preparing and mounting a force. We have the Combat Training Centre. So what we've looked at is um, where are our strengths to build on them and things like um, simulation and training. We have Cubic here who are a national leader in training combined with the, with the training centre. We've got one range and about to have another one with the Singaporeans here, a lot of training going on there. And, you know, and the strengths of the amphibious capability with two RAR and, um, and, you know, having the, the, the ports about time to go a major upgrade funded by the state government and, uh, and the, uh, the airport, the, the RAF base is about to be lengthened to, uh, through the Poseidon project to, to take any size aircraft. So they're our strengths and we've looked at, you know, where, where are our opportunities around those strengths? And look, you know, just to pick two of those, let's start with, um, and I personally think, and we, you and I have talked about this before, um, the simulation side of the business or, is really, really interesting and cutting edge. Um, and certainly uh, one of my colleagues has written on this saying, you know, that you know, there needs to be more investment in simulations. Um, now, what you're planning to do in Townsville as a result of this strategy, along with Cubic, is really building a whole government simulation capability. In fact, that's a. It's been really interesting, John. That that project has grown way beyond we envisaged twelve months ago, and we, we actually have uh, the Townsville City deal. In I don't know if you're aware, it's part of nation building. Um, the uh, federal government brought in these deals, and Townsville was the first uh, city to be given it. And it's basically an alignment uh, between federal, state, and local government to try and bring prosperity to the uh, to the city. And um, part of that was the state government. Uh, released a health and knowledge strategy. And out of that, there was a confluence recognised between health, knowledge and defence. And within the simulation area, we what we are planning to do, uh, we have a project that's leveraging the, the um, simulation uh, expertise we had through Cubic, but we're bringing it into human performance, into academia, and we're looking at building a facility. Uh, and, and, in fact, the facility will be built right on the, the, the boundary. We think it's unique, certainly in Australia. Uh, on the boundary of a of an operational army base, a uh, a hospital, and a leading university. And look, when we discuss this, you know, I often said, uh, for me, I'm sitting there thinking about it, going, these sorts of simulation activities, if that sort of centre that had a a, a multiple um, focus, you know, I mean, I can see it's the sort of thing that in the future we, we could go to and. If we were doing another evacuation similar to the one, say, out of Wuhan, it's the sort of thing that we could bring whole of government together 
and actually simulate that activity well before we start putting it in practice. You know, it's interesting because uh, we there's a lot of expertise in understanding the training and and uh, and those sort of mission rehearsals and, and and command and control, but we've actually found that it, that, that it goes far beyond that. We're looking into research and development and some of the opportunities here. It's been an interesting exercise because we didn't realise that there's there's actually a lot you know in defence science and technology group. There's a lot of work going on in uh, within the um, the university and the hospital. But there's no one actually putting it all together. There's no overarching strategy where people are looking at what's going on in the regions and how to put it together. And we see this facility; it'll be a, you know, it, it'll be a physical presence, and uh, it's almost like a gateway between a physical gateway between defence and um, and health and knowledge. But it's also a cultural boundary, and we're we're starting to see now that um, areas of academia and the university and the hospital are. are looking at uh, collaboration and working in the defence industry in a completely different way. I guess you, you gave us the key on the next one, and that is this, this issue of alignment. Um, and, and it's interesting because I look at the um, Townsville port. Now, I don't think the, the announcements are, are all out there, but certainly um, the 2020 strategic update said that, you know, they're going to create a new amphibious base or defence is going to. Um, now, that looks most likely set with 2RAR being uh, the 2nd Battalion Royal Australian Regiment being in um, being in Townsville. So, look, we, we can reasonably expect that that's likely to be the case. But, you know, you've got, you've got a big alignment task for you ahead there. So you, you've got a, your own uh, industry-focused development of a port. You've got defence who've got a requirements for those ports. Um, you've got some really exciting stuff being done in alternative fuels and energy. Um, and then on top of that, in the background, we've got... Um, I guess a nationwide search for um, increasing our national fuel storage. So I guess did you want to give us a I guess a start point of where you're at with discussing around you know the future of Townsville Port. Yeah, look, that's a really interesting question, John, because we we've just started to work with the port, and uh, it's it's interesting because we, as I said, the state government are funding a major uh, uh, this 1.7 billion dollar upgrade. And what we and you know reading through what def- it, it comes back to this mutual benefit thing. What is it the defence wants? We understand they're looking at at future upgrades. So what what we're doing now is is building a uh, a proposal to to, to discuss with defence. And it's and again it's not about saying just invest in Townsville for Townsville's sake. It's about what is it that we can do to help you with your requirements? Because as this port is being uh, developed. There are opportunities there, uh, not just with industry. We're doing this with other industries as well, but with defence, if they're looking to invest, um, as this goes on, there are be made various uh, options that they could get at a fraction of the cost to get the requirements they need. And in fact, you know, it's it, it, um, one of the things we've had to understand and, and, and understand as a community is that uh, you, you can't have everything, and it's not just about the community. It's about working together in nation building as a team. And we understand our strengths now, but we also understand where our uh, where we need help with our opportunities. In fact, we did we did the same thing with the um, with the simulation area. We understood that James Cook University uh, wouldn't be able to do this on its own, and we are uh, in discussions of partnering with um, the University of South Australia and the University of New South Wales Defence Research Institute. And along a similar line, uh, the port understand that. Um, you know, we, we are well positioned in Townsville as the bridge between um, maritime expedition and all the land forces and, the, and, and the, the aviation forces that are based here, but we don't really have the um, maritime industry to support that. So we're, we're actually uh, on meeting with uh, the Cairns Economic Development Team next week. The ports have already been well down this path. It's looking at 
or, you know, what is a regional, a northern Australian regional uh, project that we could come up with and uh, and provide defence what it needs you know, as a group? Because you know, one of the things I think maybe, you know, I know um, you, you're talking about broader nation building. I think Australia, there's no greater example of na- lack of national um, nation building than Australia. You know, in the north of Australia, you've got uh, the top half of Australia has less than 5% of the population. Between Townsville, Cairns and Darwin, there are less than 500,000 people. But it's the resource-rich 60% of all of our sea um, exports come out of the northern region. And, you know, developing the north and working together, we think, as a team, is more than just about bringing defence industry to the north for the sake of prosperity of the region. It's about, as you said right at the beginning, it's about, you know, livability and and um, and all and you know, a prosperous and thriving northern Australia and that's just vital to the you know, national sovereignty and, and nation building and defense of Australia thank you very much for introducing us to the Townsville government's um, defense strategy and I hope those who are listening can reach out there and that's available online on the um, Townsville government's web page so thank you very much David thank you very much for your time John that's all we have time for this week on policy guns and money we'll be back with another episode next week Thanks for listening.